Hi, I'm Dr. Susie Green, founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute, a positively deviant organization dedicated to creating a flourishing world. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 1. The series is based on my 6M model of flourishing, which includes six core psychological capabilities that decades of research suggests are essential in creating a flourishing life. Mood, motivation, might, meaning, mindfulness, and mindset. So join me as I speak with experts from around the globe as they share their experiences and insights together with practical strategies to proactively improve your mental health and well-being. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Gordon Spence, or Gordy, as I prefer to call him. Gordon is a registered psychologist, academic, researcher, and private practitioner. He is the past program director of the Masters of Business Coaching at the Sydney Business School, University of Wollongong, and he is current head of students at the University of Wollongong Sydney campus. Alongside his teaching and research activities, Gordon has maintained a coaching practice for over 18 years, through which he provides a range of executive and workplace coaching and coach training services. Gordon holds a PhD in coaching psychology from the Coaching Psychology Unit, University of Sydney, and he's published widely on topics such as peak performance, responsible leadership, employee engagement, workplace wellbeing, and evidence-based coaching. Gordon has a keen interest in all aspects of human performance, and he's actually currently furthering his studies and completing a Bachelor of Exercise and Sports Science at the University of Newcastle. So welcome, Gordon. Thanks so much for coming on to the show. No problem at all, Susie. And of course, we've known each other a very long time. I think it was actually, it's probably nearly 20 years now, isn't it? Oh, it is almost exactly 20 years, I think, if we were to count it. Showing our age. So when I was um, completing my, I think it was, I was in the Masters at the, at the time and then it you know, moved into the doctorate, the University mm. of Wollongong, um, you were, uh, I think, maybe just a year behind me, I think. Is that right? Or doing your honours or something? Something like that. I think I was an onlooker when you were doing your first doctoral study. That's it, with Professor Lindsay Odes, who now heads up the Centre for Positive Psychology at the University of Melbourne. And so we've really walked a bit of a shared path, Gordon, for a number of years, haven't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think we've got some common interests that we've talked about many, many times. Absolutely. So my research on coaching and Gordon's have um, been included. I think it's possibly three meta-analyses on positive psychology interventions, although I know more recently there's been some critique on the effect sizes on some of those interventions. But I'm really pleased that you could come on and speak to us today, particularly around a topic such as motivation, because when it comes to coaching, motivation is a core topic or a core component of what coaching is all about as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that people um, have sometimes a uh, varied relationship to, and it's certainly been a, a topic that's been an ongoing interest of mine for many, many years. Absolutely. And of course, right now, where we are in terms of COVID-19, you and I both know that at the best of times, motivation can wax and wane. I guess mm. I'm quite interested, and you did very kindly share your flourishing fact, is that you're a runner. Um, mm. And then I myself have, have run most of my life as well. It's wound back a little bit now. I know yours has actually wound up. So how are you maintaining motivation for your running through COVID, Gordon? 
Oh, look, I'm finding it's been very easy to do. I think it's been, it's not only an interest of mine, but from a perspective of just personal coping with uh, all the difficulties and change associated with COVID, uh, it's been absolutely essential. So, you know, I find that getting out there and being able to run and particularly being able to run in a nice environment, which I'm, I'm lucky enough to be on the doorstep of, really helps me to maintain a sense of balance, perspective, and to just refresh body and mind on a regular basis. And so, you know, I find I don't have to struggle with uh, my energy for getting out and running, and I find it just delivers uh, much more back to me than uh, than requires of me, if you know what I mean. So I get a lot more from it. Yeah, um, so it's sort of being positively reinforcing the, the good oh. feelings that you get from it sort of reinforces the behaviour. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm thinking, you know, in terms of my, my 6M model, I'd say most of the M's actually could apply when it comes to running. Um, I mean, obviously, motivation's a key part of it, but there's also the mindset that I, I'm sure there's a lot that goes through your mind leading up to it and through it, but also mindfulness. And I know today's not about mindfulness, but I know that's also been a topic that you've published on and been interested in as well. Yeah, absolutely. I weave those things together. And uh, when I'm running and when I'm feeling pretty comfortable as I'm running, I'll often play little mindfulness games with myself or I'll purposefully tune into uh, what's happening around me rather than just disappearing into my thoughts. And so, you know, I pay attention to the trees that are around me, the river that I'm running beside, the albatrosses that might be gliding down the river, you know, all of those things just become part of the, the whole experience for me. So I often finish a run feeling quite refreshed and quite calm and balanced. And it's a lovely, uh, lovely experience, really. Fantastic. What does motivation actually mean to you? And I'm, I guess I'm asking here even more from an academic or scientific perspective. Yeah, well, look, I think the... You know, the very simple definition of, mo of motivation that I hold in my head is simply that it is the energisation of behaviour. So we're really talking about any processes that allow us to bring energy to our action. And so I, I find that that helpful. And my understanding of motivation as I moved into academia and have been in academia for almost 20 years since is that what we know is that as far as human beings are concerned, well, we get motivated by all sorts of different things. And I guess the lights really started coming on for me from a motivational standpoint when I started to understand the wide variety of things that tend to motivate. And so, Susie, you'll know that really what I'm angling towards here are some of the insights that have stemmed from self-determination theory and that differentiated view of motivation. You know, we're, we're motivated by more than just carrots and sticks, rewards and punishments, which was a traditional view of motivation. There are actually lots of things that energise us some of those things are extrinsic, but many of those things are much more internal. And it's the understanding of that that I think has been a really useful set of understandings for me as a, as a practitioner, and I've gained a lot from that over time. Yeah, so it's really, I know you and I have spoken a lot about SDT over the years, self-determination yeah. theory, and for those that aren't familiar with it, perhaps, Gordon, you could give us a little brief snapshot. And again, it's how do they describe it? It is a, quite a complex um, meta-theory, is that right? Yeah, well, SDT is not one theory. It's a set of six mini theories, which you know, I won't go into in, in great detail. But for one of the, the most interesting bits of it for me is that it talks about different qualities of motivation, if you like. So uh, we can be thinking about 
ourselves as being motivated by intrinsic factors, things that exist outside of us, if you will, such as money or praise from people in our social network, you know, things that are there on the outside that energise our behaviour. These are the things that we that we often identify, readily identify and, you know, use as parents and teachers to try and motivate others, right? There's those external extrinsic factors that can drive behaviour. But then we also know that motivation can be provided or the reasons behind our action can be um, provided by other qualities as well. So uh, that can be things like interjected factors, things where we are being motivated by a sense of obligation or we feel we must or should do something. It's something that we hold within us, but is not entirely of us, if you like. So really, we're talking about internalised values of others are the things that drive our behaviour. And so we're talking about a form of motivation there that is not entirely owned. And this is where SDT gets a bit more detailed and also recognises that there are other internal drivers that motivate behaviour, where we perhaps are more wholeheartedly believing in something that we are doing so that it is even more internal or that we might take something on because we are incredibly interested in it. And with each of these different levels, it becomes more and more internal. It becomes more and more core to a sense of who we are. And so you see with a theory like SDT that there is an internalisation integration process that's captured by that theoretical perspective. And that can explain a lot. And certainly the research that's been done shows that as behaviour becomes more internalised and more integrated, and people tend to invest more effort in their goals, they tend to set more goals that are reflective of who they feel they are and what they truly value. They tend to put in more effort towards those goals, and they'll tend to also attain those goals more readily than other sorts of goals, and they'll feel better about the outcomes. Absolutely. And um, it's a very practical theory, isn't it? Like I think Kurt Lewin said, there's nothing as practical as a good theory. And I know myself as a practitioner, I've used self-determination theory pretty much with every client. And I'm wondering, do you do the same? I do. And it can be really useful because whilst there are nuances to the theory that can make it quite complicated and a bit complex. At a higher level, there's a set of uh, realisations for people that I think can be really useful. And one of those is just helping people to reflect on the reasons why they take on particular goals or commit to particular activities and tasks. And when they can start to think about it through the lens of, is this a controlled form of motivation that's driving me towards this particular goal? Or is it more autonomous? Is it more something that I feel I have a personal sense of ownership over and I feel a sense of volition moving towards? Just getting people to reflect on that simple, those dimensions can be quite revealing. And I've had many, many instances where people have had these light bulb moments where they go, oh, my goodness, I'm doing this because I feel I should, ought to or have to. And it's actually not because of it's not a set of reasons that are deeply connected to the sense of who I am. I'm actually doing it because this is something that my family is always endorsed or the significant people around me think is important. And if I don't do it, I'll feel bad about that. I'll feel ashamed and I'll beat myself up as a result. Just that simple insight can be quite significant. Absolutely. And in my work, I've, and I'm, I think you've done the same, I've drawn heavily on values. And of course, with some of the yeah. act-based approaches coming through now, they also draw heavily on values. Can you tell us a little bit about the connection between values and, and intrinsic motivation? 
Well, I think this is, you know, values, we talk about them a lot. People generally know that, you know, they're important drivers of behaviour or, if I can put it in inverted commas, should be <laughs> important drivers of behaviour. And there are often things that we lose sight of, that we forget about. And so getting people to reflect on their values and then ask questions about, well, to what extent are these values actually being reflected in the things that you're doing and the things that you are choosing to do? Again, once people start to think about that and introspect in that way, then they can start to see some gaps. It's like, well, hang on a minute. I'm actually not these goals that I have for my career or other things that I'm doing in my life. They're not lining up with my values at all. Actually, that perhaps is giving me a few clues as to why I'm not attaining these goals as readily as I might like to, because I'm just not excited by it. And so I think when people start to get that solid connection back to values, they can then start to be thinking about, well, what am I actually committing to? What am I not committing to that I could be committing to? And if I did set goals that were more values aligned, what would that look like and how am I likely to feel? Uh, I think when people start having those sorts of conversations with themselves and then start doing something about it, then people start to feel that their energy starts to become a little more plentiful uh, when it comes to, um, you know, acting in the world. And this probably lines up too with mindfulness. One of, one of the things we know about uh, mindfulness, mindfulness practice, is that one of the outcomes or the benefits of engaging more mindfully in our daily pursuits and taking on mindfulness practices is values clarification. We can start to see ourselves in a more clarified way. And as soon as we can start to see that, then it becomes a little easier to be able to make decisions about what we're going to commit to in a way that be more values aligned. So, yeah, there's definitely a connection between values and the quality of motivation that flows from acting in accordance with those values. And that really sort of drives at this idea of intrinsic motivation you're talking about. Yes, and the research has really supported that for a long time. Besides the values, I guess the awareness and then, you know, the explicit linkage, so it becomes the, yeah, the why of the goals. But is there any other practical strategies that uh, you use or we could recommend to in help enhance intrinsic motivation? Well, I'm tempted to get a little technical here, Sue. <laughs> You're allowed. <laughs> I'm tempted to get a little technical because we talk about intrinsic motivation. Yeah. And actually intrinsic motivation is a pretty rare thing. Yes. Right? I think intrinsic motivation, as you know, is defined as an engagement in an activity or task where the value gained is inherent in the activity itself. Right? It's not contingent upon anything else. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about what I'm doing. I'm doing it because I love it. So you're purely intrinsically motivated for your running, it sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I don't need anybody to be paying me money or giving me medals for me to run. Right? Or e even it's thinking explicitly about your values to motivate yourself to get up in the morning. That's not even required. No, it's not even required. Mm -hmm. And so I think how do we get intrinsic motivation? I think that's a really interesting question, but I think we just need to recognise that not everything can be intrinsically motivated. Um, but I think the answer, part of the answer to your question comes back to thinking about yourself 
in a very deep way. I've done exercises with people trying to get people to tune in or, or become a little bit more aligned to their intrinsic motivations by thinking about things that they used to do as children. As you and I know, Carl Rogers and, and other humanistic theorists would talk about things such as the, uh, the organismic valuing process, you know, these things that we are naturally attuned to and find enjoyable and will move towards if society doesn't get in our way, you know, we're really sort of talking about those things. They are quite present in childhood. Yeah. And I think we lose connection to those things over time. So I've had clients and, and got them really to start thinking very seriously about what did you get excited about as a kid? What sorts of things, what sorts of activities, what sorts of tasks were you naturally inclined towards? And getting people to think in quite a deep way about that can sometimes be revealing. And they can remember things that they used to do or they would like to have done and never did that they might like to explore again because if they did, they might discover a little bit of that magic source, which we call intrinsic motivation. And right? would you say that, I mean, there's been research, as you know, by Professor Robert Valorand on passion, but would you yeah. say these are people's passions, you know, from these sort of, you know, childhood, I know I rode horses extensively through my teens and it's something I still miss doing and I want to get back to. Yeah, what is that connection? Is it, is it passion? I know of his work, I'm not intimately familiar with it, but whenever I read about it, that's what I always think. Yeah, I find that really interesting because I do use the same exercises I have with clients over the years too and um, it's amazing, isn't it, the memories. Even the, I had one client that recalled baking with his uh, grandmother and after one of our workshops he set a commitment to start baking again with his kids because he would bring back the associated memories and the joy and pleasure that he had from that activity. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, you know, I think part of that is is an introspective process of just, you know, really tuning into what is it that really fuels my passions? And I'm going to use, use your words and there lie some clues. But I want to come back to your question about, well, what can we do to enhance intrinsic motivation? And just reflect again on, you know, some of the things that self-determination theory says, which is that most of our behavior is extrinsically motivated mm. that most of our behavior is extrinsically motivated we are social beings yeah and so a lot of our behavior is shaped by the social context that we are in yes and so what does that mean well that means that your parents matter your teachers matter your work colleagues matter and they matter to us and so it's very easy for us to shape our behavior around what others would prefer mm. Now, we go on a journey with that. So I think in many ways, theories like SDT are talking about developmental processes. That's right. And that we can actually go through, pass through a developmental trajectory when it comes to our motivation for things. So that some things can be motivated by money or praise or whatever when we first take them on. But over time, it's possible for those behaviours. So if we think about something like... A child doing the recycling, you know, you ask a child to go and sort the recycling, put in the recycling bins, right? So Johnny might do that for $2 pocket money, and that's the thing that motivates that behaviour. Yeah. But it's possible for that action and activity to be transformed in Johnny's mind and for Johnny to have a different relationship to that activity. And, again, this is, this is where, you know, SDT is quite useful because SDC says, well, the social context now becomes really important. How does 
Johnny gets supported in a way that might allow him to pass into a place of a high quality motivation in regards to that recycling chore. Exactly. So, you know, we can be doing things like helping Johnny to internalise that task, seeing it as being a contribution to the household. Yep. It's not just something that I get money for. It's actually this helps the household. Yes. And so there's a way in which parents can assist young people to develop a different way of thinking about the same task in such a way as they begin to own it more. That's it, yeah. Yeah, and this is where, you know, the three basic needs come in. We can maybe give Johnny some choice about how he engages with that task, when he might do it, how he might do it. Talk to him a little bit about that. Talk to him about the importance of it. You know, how does this actually contribute to the wider world? These sorts of processes take time to evolve and take time for a young person or any person to reframe the experience. But over time, with the right support, a person can move to a place of being much more intrinsically and internally motivated by this. They might not love it and do it sheerly for its own enjoyment, but they at least take it on because they can wholeheartedly believe in it or may actually even develop an interest in recycling such that this is really interesting to me now because I can think about what these cans or bottles are going to become. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? That, that the social context and the way in which little Johnny's basic psychological needs are supported. Again, we talk in SDT, autonomy, competence, relatedness. The extent to which the social context helps him to meet those needs can allow that activity and the motivation for that activity to be transformed. To become internalised, absolutely. And you and I both have worked in, whether it's sports or business, and it's you know, these theories of um, particularly SDT has been taught quite explicitly for athletes and for executives to understand and apply. Yeah. But how important do you think it is, as you've sort of been referring to in your story there, to teach these skills of motivation more widely and in particular to our children? Critically important to children. I think there's two things I'd say about it, Susie. One would be, and I've talked about this a lot in, in workshops when, when motivation comes up. I think that for some people there can be a, a sense that motivation is this thing that somehow gets passively received, mm. right? So if I'm not motivated by something, yes. well, I'm not motivated by it, so there's not much I can do about it. Yeah. I'm just not motivated by it. And so there's a real passivity, I think, that can sometimes sit around some of the goals and activities that people take on, whether it be in their personal life or in their work life, that it's just like, oh, well, there's not much I can do. Whereas I, I see motivation being a much more active process where we can exert a whole lot more control over our experience and influence that in a substantial way. And, you know, I often think back here to um, something that I heard our great friend and colleague Michael Kavanagh at the University of Sydney say many, many years ago, he was talking about Victor Vroom's expectancy theory. And Michael has this nice, uh, he had this nice little shortcut version of it, which was motivation equals interest in the goal, times faith and success. Right now, I love that small little theory. I mean, Vroom's theory is, you know, much more sort of complex and it's a mathematical cognitive model. It's a different beast. But distilled down into that simple formula, motivation equals interest in the goal times faith and success is really handy because you can get people starting to think about their motivation and the extent to which maybe they're not motivated. Yes. 
And it's all of a sudden it's like, okay, so what's lacking here? Is it interest in the goal or is it faith and success or is it both? Yes. Okay, what can we do to maybe raise the level of interest in the goal? How could that be transformed? What could we do potentially to build a little more confidence here? What strengths haven't you uh, remembered that you have or what past success haven't you remembered that you've got behind you? A little theory like that all of a sudden makes motivation something that you can influence. It becomes really powerful. And I know when I was finishing off my doctorate, I was studying clinical neuropsychology, had a subject of that. And at the time I was thinking, oh, I'm not going to be a neuropsychologist. Like, this is really difficult and I don't really want to <laughs> learn this. And interestingly enough, I just was coming across self-determination theory and learning about it at the time. So I had a big aha moment when I thought, well, you can drag yourself into that class and have that mindset and think that way and possibly, well, the research suggests not do very well at it at all. Or you can think, actually, Susie, how might this help you? Perhaps you're not going to be a clinical neuropsychologist, but how might this help you in the future? And to tell you the truth, Gordon, I wish I'd paid more attention because now it's so relevant, isn't it? But I was able to get my head around it and motivate myself a bit more at the time. So that's one of the things that I, I think is kind of important for people to understand is that we have more influence over how motivated we are than we sometimes think. And it's really easy to become a bit passive and inert around that. So that's one thing I think is important. And that's something that you can very easily do with children, particularly if, you, if the models that you're working with are fairly straightforward. Um, the other thing I would say about the importance is absolutely uh, important, and this is where, and you said it before, you know, it's nothing nothing quite so useful as a good theory. And I've used, again, coming back to SDT, it's just we keep doing that because it has a lot to say about motivation. It has a lot to say about motivation in quite a, a detailed, nuanced way, and, and, and that's enormously useful. I've often used elements of SDT and introduced new leaders to it because I, I just find I've found that SDT is quite a humanizing theory in many ways, given it's got, you know, strong connections back into humanistic psychology and Carl Rogers's work and, and others. Talking to new leaders about basic needs theory and talking about the importance of three psychological needs, autonomy, competence and relatedness, can be really useful, I find, with particularly new leaders who might not have developed any mental models or a way of thinking about the people that they are about to go out and lead and to be thinking about them in a humanising way. I just find that it's a simple framework that can encourage lots of really useful conversations but also the development of models models that can influence leader behaviour in ways that potentially make them really effective. Absolutely. And we've also introduced it to educators and uh, I think, yeah. you know, asking just the sim- three simple questions, you know, am I building competence? So um, is there an opportunity to see strengths and name strengths? Yeah. Am I giving choice? And often that's difficult in an educational setting, but where there's choice, give choice. And am I focusing on the relationship or what am I doing to build that relationship rather than just focusing on getting through the curriculum? And I know yeah. from educators that's been really powerful just to reflect, as you said, on those three basic needs. And I just want to dial back on what you're saying there about autonomy and choice. Yes. And you're right. Um, there are times, particularly in organisations, where it's not possible to always give people choice. But this is where the idea of autonomy support becomes really important because you might not be able to give someone choice, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that their sense of autonomy has to be destroyed. 
Right. Now, I think you were going to ask me maybe, because I know what you like, whether there's a book that people could read <laughs> Absolutely. Um, about this sort of stuff. Yeah. And there is, and one that I think is particularly useful and particularly useful for helping people to understand this notion of what it means to support the autonomy of another person would be Edward Desi's book, why we do what we do. Right. What is basically, it's one of those classic situations where you have an eminent scientist writing a book with someone who can help that person to dilute their yes. ideas a little and more. Make right? it, yeah, user friendly, yeah. And so it tells researchy type stories, but kind of gets the point across. It's a short book, it's not dense, it's very user friendly, but it really does. I haven't read it in a little while, but my real strong impression when I read it was wow, this really helps you understand what autonomy support's all about. Fantastic. And part of that autonomy support piece in terms of what it means in the way in which you work with someone and how someone might work with themselves is to ask questions not about, well, if I had all the choices, what would I decide to do? But it's often about making choices about what something means. Sometimes it's about deciding how am I going to reframe this for myself? And that is a choice. That's, That's not a choice about what time I'm going to come to work or what task I'm going to do next. That's a choice about, well, what is this thing going to mean to me? Yes. And if, if I can reframe that meaning in a way that also is in some way attached to values, hey, I'm in a pretty good place. And if someone's trying to support me in that thought process, then I may still have to do something, but I'm doing it now with a different mindset. Absolutely. And uh, the job crafting, which is in the chapter on meaning yeah. in the positivity prescription, we explore that a little in there too, which can be hugely um, Job helpful. crafting is absolutely in that space. Absolutely. Yeah. And look, Gordon, there's so much we could talk about. And uh, this yeah. is a huge topic, isn't it? Motivation. It's been researched for, I don't know, over 100 years or more now, or even perhaps longer through to philosophy. But um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you would love to share? with people today before we wrap up? One thing, I think I've been trying to get a book finished on that has strong motivational overtones, which is about people returning to exercise in midlife, which is a bit of an interest area of mine. And I think that one of the really important things that people also think about when it comes to thinking about the goals or the general direction that they're heading in life and how they're progressing with that, when they're thinking about their motivation, then we really need to remember that that's not something that we need to be pursuing on our own. And that's also really important for us to think about the ecosystems that exist around us that can help to support us with that. And so really I'm, I'm talking about you know, social support. It's not just social support, but that's a big part of it. And configuring, configuring an ecosystem for ourselves that can support what we are doing and help to keep our motivation and our energy levels nice and high. And a quick example of that, is related to my my running experience. So we're sort of coming back to where we started. One of the things that's allowed me to continue to run, really run well through the COVID period, has been the existence of a brilliant, brilliant running community up in the area that I live here, up in the Central Coast. And the way in which those people have supported each other around this common interest that we have. Beautiful community. We've done a whole lot of stuff across the COVID period in COVID safe ways. A lot of virtual challenges and and virtual support being applied and tapping into that, finding it and tapping into it 
uh, whether it be a fitness-related goal, other ways in which your interests and goals can be supported and gathering those resources in is a real important part of being able to sustain motivation in the long term. It really is. I know I was sort of lying on the lounge at 6 o'clock on the Tuesday night and meant to be at a boxing class at 6.30 and my buddy William texted me and said, no, we're going, we're going. And so, you know, I can attest to that power of having a buddy to affect your motivation and get you there and working out. And this is part of the standard advice that's always given. But, you know, I think sometimes we can tune out to the real power and value of it. And it's just been rammed home to me in the last few months about how important it is and what the opportunities are that exist out there. And often we don't know who's out there and who's striving towards the same stuff. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And um, I know we're about to wrap up, but I guess, you know, I'd like to thank you for having a positive impact on my motivation for the topics that we both have a passion for, which is coaching psychology. So I absolutely know that there's been times in my career when you've had a major impact on my motivation too, Gordon. So thank you so well, much. Well, that cuts both ways, Susie. So um, thank you for inviting me on. It's great what you're doing and uh, hopefully people out there are getting something out of the topics that you're covering. I hope so. And, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on and we'll certainly put all the details about books that you've recommended, any other publications and your upcoming book. I can't wait to read that. So thank you. No well, that was fun. Thanks very much for listening to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 1. Don't forget to sign up for our e-news from our website where you can stay up to date with all things positive. See you next episode and remember, life's too short to languish.